the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Catherine Mann, Director of Education Services for Parkland School Division. Catherine started her career in 1992 following a Bachelor of Education degree with distinction from the University of Alberta. Her first year was serving students as a grade 4 through 9 French teacher and grade 8 language arts teacher before making the move the following year to Duffield School, where she stayed for 12 years teaching a variety of grades and subjects. She led choral and music productions and coached volleyball, basketball, and track and field. Catherine then moved into administration as assistant principal and principal at different schools. Catherine earned her master's in education with a focus on leadership in June 2008, and she has extensive experience in the areas of instructional leadership and has interest in a number of areas such as assessment and reporting. I think you're really going to like our conversation and you're going to like her perspective and learn how we can divisionally or from a leadership perspective, move forward some of our work that we, uh, that we really concentrate on that we think are going to help student learning. Now, if you do like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed and we're even on Facebook And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes, leave a review, or just tell a friend that you really liked an episode. Here's my conversation with Kathy Mann. Hi, Kathy Mann. How are you today? Hi, Corey Haley. I'm really good. How are you? I am well as well and really excited to talk to you today. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. But before we kind of get into the crux of what I really want to talk to you, I want to talk to you about your position, because I think that it is fairly innovative, and I think that you're moving the needle. And so I'd like you to let people know what your focus is at work, and uh, what maybe your position is, and maybe some of the projects you've been working on this year. Um, Because as I said, I think it might be an interesting idea for other school divisions to think about. Sure. So my official title is Director of Instructional Services with Parkland School Division. And um, I guess my position was created with the end in mind of looking after the baseline of supports when we think about um, response to intervention. So in our division, we've, you know, we've had a lot of resources uh, geared towards the targeted interventions, the specialized programming and that sort of thing. And we uh, we decided that, or the division decided that it would be good to maybe turn our eye to that baseline level of supports. And I guess it was brought about by some interest in revisiting our reporting and assessment really was the initial um, initial kind of push to say, you know, how can we be more clear in our minds about what parents and students need to consume on a report card versus what good assessment practices look like. So it's probably an extension of like the old curriculum and assessment, but 
more framed around that response to intervention at the baseline level of supports. Awesome. And so I guess one of the other things is that, and so just to be clear, you're looking at generalized data as opposed Mm -hmm. to specialized data, as opposed to narrowing down on one particular segment of the student population. You're really looking at not, not big data, but mm-hmm. across a broader stre- spectrum, would you say yeah. that that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. Like our division is interested in pushing our results. Uh, our leadership wants to see better results, so not just achievement results, but in all sorts of different ways. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of work involved in how we gather that information, what's valuable information, and then, of course, what do we do with that in response mm-hmm. to it is really the question. And that's really where I want to start because um, – you know, I find that assessment and then the data that comes with it mm-hmm. at a school level or even bigger than that can be can be difficult to manage. I mean, everything about how how you get it, so that's the assessment piece, what it means, tracking it, especially year over year. Um, you know that that can become really difficult and overwhelming. Yeah. And so I know that you've been working in this with this question and mm-hmm. you've been and looking at it. And I'm, I'm interested to know what are some of the issues that you've seen schools face and what have you seen as perhaps some some good starting points or some possible solutions? Because mm-hmm. I know you don't have all the answers yet, although mm-hmm. that would be really handy if you could just uh, <laughs> lay those all out yeah, for us. Yeah, that would be lovely. But unfortunately, I haven't got that for you. Um, I think in my experience with data gathering, what I've learned over the years is that you have to be really clear in your mind about what problem it is that you're trying to solve. Um, And so instead of kind of taking this data-driven decision-making approach, you take more of a decision-driven data collection approach, right? So you know what problem it is you're needing to solve, and then you decide what is the data that I need to help me figure out how to go about that, right? So Um, When we're looking at achievement results, of course, we're going to look at our standardized testing, but we're also maybe going to look at all the things that are going on around that. For example, attendance has been one of the things that's come up recently in our division. And so we, I don't think we had a really clear picture on what our attendance profile looked like. And when we started crunching some numbers on the number of kids we had that were chronically absent and then what the trends were in terms of the connection to their graduation rates, it was really quite surprising. And so I think it's helped uh, arm us a little bit, uh, put some, I guess, you know, tools in our kit to, you know, have conversations with parents and with kids about, listen, here's the impact of, you know, what happens when you don't come to school on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Now, when you are speaking with schools or when you're looking at schools, do you have any, do you have any kind of tips or anything, any schools that you've seen have been using that data? So I hear you. Yeah. First of all, have an idea of what you're actually asking, yeah. what you're trying to solve. Yeah. But is there any tips or tricks that you've seen around just like the number of different sources of data or maybe some assessment stuff? Well, I think in the terms of practicalities with schools, it has to be it has to be manageable, right? Like it can't be teachers are so busy and school administrators are so busy. And so what you want to do is gather data that's um easy to grab at, readily accessible but still meaningful. So the schools who have done well in our division um, tend to be very focused on, for example, leveled literacy, right? They, they're doing, they have a process, a procedure in place. They've got routines and structures that are around that ongoing data gathering um, you know, 
collaborative assessment design and then looking at those results, right? Kind of on an ongoing basis. So it just becomes a part of your part and parcel of your practice in terms of how you do business, right? So if you have teachers who are meeting on a regular basis, they're bringing their assessment data to the table and they're saying, well, here's where I did really well and here's where I'm concerned. And then you have conversations around, okay, what are the strategies now? Because that's the that's where you have your impact. What are we going to do to address what's going on? So I don't, I don't know that there's any particular kind of data that's important to gather. I think it's what fits, again, that problem that you're trying to solve. What's going to tell us some good information about what we need to know. Absolutely. You mentioned this earlier, but I'm interested to know your take on this because it's a conversation that we've been having. And that's this difference between the data you're talking about, data and assessment for uh, to inform instruction. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of that is how we communicate student achievement to parents right. and to the community. And it seems as though at times we either view this as one and the same or we have difficulty differentiating yeah. that. And um, I know that I know that around the province, people are really having a, a second thought or they have an evolving understanding of how they communicate to parents versus what they need as teachers. And I'm interested to know kind of what you've seen, uh, because you've had a little bit of time to think about that mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and what, you, what you've learned through that process of, of going deep into a report card mm-hmm. that, that really is geared towards parents. Yeah. Well, I think today teachers are doing all sorts of things to communicate with parents and with students about progress and achievement, um, partly empowered by their access to technology and social media. It is just easier to communicate what's going on with kids. We have all sorts of, you know, between Seesaw and other digital portfolios and email and whatever, right? Like it's soup to nuts. So parents are getting a really good idea on a very ongoing basis about where their kids are at and what they're doing. They don't want that on a report card. They want a very clean here's where they're at, here's a grade or descriptor or whatever, a little bit of a comment kind of explaining what the grade is about. But really, for the most part, parents are informed and and know what it is they need to know. So that piece of paper, if you want them to read it, it needs to be a quick at a glance. Yep, that's kind of in line with what I already know. Yeah. It's my, what I found as a, at a school level is that when it got too big, when there was too much data, either A, they didn't open it at all mm-hmm. or B they looked at that and, and couldn't make sense of it. Right. They were looking for something that was about much simpler. Yeah. Uh, have you found the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Like the feedback we've had from parents is that we just, we're glad that it's clear. It's simple. Um, all that other language around curriculum and instruction, that's good for our teachers. And it's good for our teachers that they are communicating that to the students because the students really are the recipient of that feedback information, that formative feedback information about their performance. Um, and if parents want to know that, they can certainly ask and get more information. But you're right, like in in their busy lives, they just want that, again, that quick at a glance. They don't They don't necessarily need to know or want to understand all of that language, that curriculum language around, you know, that's our job as educators to understand that and then to translate that to the student. But again, make it just nice and simple and clear for our parents. You bet. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about leading divisional improvement mm-hmm. because you're, you're, you've been in schools for a long time mm-hmm. and now you, you've come one level above and you're looking at this more from a, from a district or, or a multi-school approach. And I imagine that 
you know, leading school improvement is, is difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I imagine leading, leading improvement from a divisional level right. is even more daunting. I want to know what are your thoughts about helping school leaders and teachers to improve when you're working at that centralized position? And I imagine your thoughts have uh, evolved and changed mm-hmm. uh, over the last little bit working. What have, what have you learned? Well, uh, so my background is quite, I have a range, right? So I used to work in a very small rural school, 100 kids. And then I also worked in a high school that was over a thousand kids. And so I, I had that notion of that spread between, you know, when you're in a small school, you're, you're driving a little speedboat, you can turn real fast and make corrections as you go. A high school of a thousand plus, you're driving more of a cruise ship, right? So you gotta be, you know, you gotta make sure everything's kind of working in the same direction. At the division level, it's even more so, right? And, and even a little bit more complicated because you have division people that you're trying to coordinate along with your school level administrators who are trying to coordinate their own schools. What I have thought about and learned from all of this, it's interesting you ask this because I just finished a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am you familiar, are. Yes. Okay, so I, I don't want to say the author's name. Is he's a surgeon? He's a doctor, right? Yeah. And so he was charged Atul Gawande. I want to say, uh, yeah. yeah. So I apologize, <laughs> author of that book, if I got your name wrong. But um, he was charged with coming up with a checklist for surgery to eliminate common errors that would happen. It was um, he was it was requested by the WHO, and so um, he there was a moment in the book when he talks about you know. You can have all the best parts, right? So you talked about a car, for example. You could have the best brakes from a Porsche and the engine of a Ferrari. I don't know cars, so I don't know what you would pick from each vehicle. And But if you put it all together, you probably would have a hunk of junk, right? So it doesn't matter that you have the best people specialized in their area if you don't have them all working together. And his message in the book is you need to have procedures and checklists to make sure that people are coordinating and are working in response to each other so that we're all kind of pulling in the same direction. And that was that was very informative for me. And that was part of, I think, underneath my drive to want to gather better information and have some procedures in place so that um, people have the tools that they need and that they are working together and all pulling in the same direction in their own area of specialty doing what they do best, but we're all working together. And that was one of the things he talked about with checklists is the best checklist, make sure that the team checks in with each other um, early on, right? right. So, now, And one of the things that I also wanted to speak about, because I know that this has been something you've been working on as well, is that at a school, it's quite easy to, to, to check in with mm-hmm. staff. Yeah. It's easy to get feedback. It's easy to co-develop plans and implementation plans and to to have this back and forth type conversation i wondered what what your thinking was in a divisional level Mm -hmm. because um perhaps it's not as easy but it seems like you you you've consciously approached it Mm -hmm. in, in different ways what have you found about that have you found it's um there are ways and and have you found that you're able to get that meaningful feedback to make sure that the plan you put in place is actually going to be workable Mm -hmm. well i think first of all you have to be present and available in the same way a school administrator has to be present and available to their staff so you have to be willing to go out into schools be the face be known make those connections and you have to make it known that you are seeking negative feedback and that's that is a tricky thing because when you have a thing that you've developed 
new report card, attendance policy, whatever it is, you want people to like it, right? Like that's your, you worked hard on it. You think you did your job by gathering all the feedback and you really want people just to say, yeah, it looks great, move on. But that's actually not effective. You have to actually poke people a little bit to say, tell me what's wrong with this. Mm -hmm. And they don't always want to tell you (laughs) because they don't trust that, you know, you're going to take it in good faith. So I think you have to really work hard at seeking that negative feedback to make sure that what you're doing is is on track with what everybody believes. And then I think you build trust that way, right? Because mm-hmm. then you will get the best information. I used to say that to my staff, that I'm only as good as the information that you give me. So if you don't tell me the truth about the decisions I'm making or the things that we're putting in place, then mm-hmm. I'm not as good as I could be. You talk a lot about data, and I want to talk to you or ask you about values, Because I find that in conversations that we have, oftentimes data versus values becomes Mm. almost oppositional. Mm. It's like almost you get two camps. But I don't find that often uh, with conversations around you. Mm -hmm. How do you you navigate that idea of of assessment and data-driven versus what we think about education is right and what's right for kids and and what our job as educators is. And and there are times when perhaps data might not agree with some things or which generally leads to change in practice Mm -hmm. or or perhaps... Um, you know, more more conflictual type type conclusions. Yeah. Have Have you run into that? And, and what do you say about that? People who are are kind of they use almost that excuse of values to counter a, a data uh, conversation. Yeah. So I I've tried to think about because of course people aren't obvious when you're in that kind of maybe conflicting position with them. I think I know what you're getting at that when you are when you're interested. In data, people think that maybe you're just all about the numbers and That's the results right. and not human, you're not about the kids, right? right? And so, yeah, again, it has to, I think it's how you, how you model um, your own feedback. And again, the data collection about your own performance, I think, has a real impact on how other people see that. So again, if I'm willing to look at the data and say, you know what, like this is telling me that the direction we're going is not the direction that I need to be going, then you're you're kind of walking your talk a little bit. But I think in conversation with people, there's always a way to bring the data to the story, right? So if the data is not telling the right story, if you take the time with people to say, okay, tell me what's going on here. How can I help you? Because I think that's the other concern is when you're collecting data, people think they're being measured and evaluated. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's never really the first the first question I have for me to judge where I'm going to put you, it's more about where are the supports that, you know, or what are the supports that we need to put in place. So I think if you come at it more from a, how can I help based on the areas we've identified here where you need support? um, I I think there's a way in there that's maybe a little bit more accessible. And I think that that comes back to your first, the first comment and the first thing that we were talking about, as opposed to, you know, assessment and data just being, you know, what is it telling? Really asking yourself, what's the decision or what's the problem that we're trying to solve here? And if mm-hmm. we come at it, okay, we have this problem, we're trying to solve this thing, let's mm-hmm. come up with a, a plan of attack. That that goes back to that human aspect yeah. where it's not just about following inhuman numbers. Yeah. Um, it's actually about the problems that, that people face and yeah. that students face. So. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because when I think about my own practice as an educator, I mean, I gave tests like everybody else and I did my number crunching like everybody else and I analyzed my paths like everybody else. But the the assessment 
procedures that I were, that I was most interested in were the formative pieces. So, um, you know, which is the timeliness of what happens before you get to the place when you write the test. So sitting down with kids and having conversations and saying, okay, talk me through. I see this question is not, you're not doing this question quite correctly. I was, when I was teaching math, this is not quite what I'm looking for. Tell me what you were thinking with this. And that actually helped me understand more about them as a learner. And I valued the mistakes more. And I think that has always stuck with me when I work with teachers and administrators. Okay, tell me what you're thinking about this, because this is not quite jiving with what we want to see, right? So, Yeah, I love that. I'm interested to know, is there something about education that you really think is true? You, you've had the opportunity to talk to quite a few people about about different things, probably mm -hmm. a, a larger swath of, of the educational public than, yeah. than probably normal working in a school. So you're, you're coming across and you almost take it for granted because you believe it's true, but that you're, you're surprised by the number of people in this thing that the people give you pushback on. They don't actually agree or they don't, they don't think it's a, as a universal truth as you, you thought it was oh. made out to be. I don't know. That's a funny question because I don't know, again, with the way I approach those conversations, I don't know that I necessarily go, I try to avoid having those kinds of assumptions. Mm. Um, I try to, I mean, to borrow from Covey, to seek to understand first before I, before I bring my own assumptions and judgments into play. One thing I will identify, though, that I think is different than what most people believe in education, especially in our culture, is this notion of competition versus we're kind of all in it together. Mm. So I believe that teachers are very collaborative in nature. I think sometimes it's hard to provide the opportunities mm. for them to collaborate. But I think that when we um, think about our students in the classroom, we promote, I think we inadvertently sometimes promote too much competition amongst kids. And I say that because I'm a little bit, now that we're kind of going forward with a little more structure to our grading system, I think we need to be careful that we don't slide back into that little bit more competitive way of doing things because I truly believe that a classroom should be a place where everybody's working together to make sure we all get there. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we give lip service to that, but I don't know that we actually truly believe that. Yeah. And especially the kids who are like the high flyers, right? Uh, you know, when we talk about collaboration, you know, sometimes we get from parents, you know, why should my kid have to be the one to help, you know, the kids who are struggling in the class and really we all benefit, right? Mm -hmm. When everybody does well. And that's just kind of part of the ethos of our country with, you know, having kind of a blended way of doing things in this. And it's just that, that tension and that balance, I think we always have to be mindful of. Yeah, I, it makes me also think of some of the skills that um, we're getting from the business community, at least the, the conversations mm -hmm. that I'm having with people isn't necessarily that they want the smartest um, person who can memorize a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit more of those collaborative skills, the <clears throat> problem solving skills, mm -hmm. the even social skills yeah. so that they can enter into a work environment, work with a team, get stuff done, yeah. be a valued member of the team. Yeah. And people actually want to be around you. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. We want everybody to do well, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think we can have this scarcity mentality that there's only so much to go around and that the cream of the crop are going to rise to the top. And well, if you're not there, then I guess whatever, that's not my problem. But in reality, we know those people do become our problem because we end up paying for them through, you know, whatever health or social services or whatnot. So the more everybody can do well, I think the better off we all are. Totally. You know, I'm also interested in learning environments, and I find that people's personal experience often uh, forms the basis of, of not an epiphany, but they form, they kind of know intuitively from their own experience what is a good learning environment because mm-hmm. they've experienced it. Now, when you think back and you think about a situation where you learned a lot, where for one reason or another, the learning just seemed to flow, what was it about that? learning environment was it places or people or activities or things what do you think about when you think about the greatest place to learn i think when you create an environment where people feel comfortable to say what they actually think or know or have understood like to say for real and you know put truly on the table what it is that's going on in their heads that to me is very exciting Um, I'm not a very political creature. I have a hard time, you know, filtering and being careful and that sort of thing. I don't do well in that kind of environment where I have to check myself. I mean, I'm an adult, so I have to, you know, speak appropriately and be respectful and that sort of thing. But I, I don't feel truly engaged unless I can say exactly what it is that I need to say. And then also hear what somebody else truly feels about that. I And again, it's just that free flow of information and authenticity. And I think that's what I'm getting at is that authentic learning environment where um, people are highly engaged and uh, really putting themselves on the table for real. Yeah. Yeah. And and you, you mentioned how trust mm-hmm. was such an important part of the conversations. And I think that that, that also speaks to that. You, you get that free flow mm-hmm. if you have uh, built up because right. just happened, uh, built up a trusting relationship. Yeah. Do you have a favorite success or failure? And what I mean by favorite success is something that either went really well or really bad. And you think about being like, Oh, I learned something really important in that moment because of, um, the positive or negative situation that, that happened. Well, I think I probably fail every day, so it's probably hard to pick out a favorite failure. I I know um, I've learned, I have had to learn um, not to underestimate what other people have going on, uh, Mm -hmm. that uh, I may not be the smartest person in the room, uh, that, you know, again, to listen and try to understand what other people are saying. So when I assume otherwise, those are probably the moments where I have my biggest failures when I stick my foot in my mouth and think I have the answer when I haven't really taken the time to listen and understand. I think those have probably been my my biggest failures, but in some ways my biggest success because I've learned from that and mm-hmm. I've uh you know, you come out on the other side better in those situations when you realize, you know, other people have some really valuable things to contribute. I find your answer super interesting because when we were talking about things that you believe are true that you get pushback on, you kind of referenced that answer mm-hmm. about about probably your answer to that one was, was because you have learned yeah. to really listen to people. And so I love it when 
for you. Yeah, I, I just think that that's really interesting. I've had to learn the hard way, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we I did well in school, right? So I, I was used to always being, you know, one of the smart kids in the room, and my answer was right, and I didn't have to worry about, you know, having to maybe check myself or modify my thinking. But I've been very blessed with working with some very intelligent people who've called me out for my. Uh, for lack of a better phrase, my BS, I've had to learn from that, right? So it's been good. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite website, a favorite app, or a favorite maybe film or something like that Did you like to recommend to people or that you use? Uh, I'm a big visible learning fan. Um, you, you know, and I know the Hattie research people are there. I kind of love it. You don't, but uh, I do. I'm, I'm a big fan of that stuff. I think uh, you because I'm such a, d- a data geek that, that I, I can't help myself from being interested in that. Um, so the Corwin, Corwin has, the Corwin Institute has a bunch of, you know, they do some really great webinars and things like that. So I do kind of connect with that. I'm actually really terrible for social media and websites and that sort of thing. I kind of go to that stuff intentionally. I'm not somebody who kind of relies on that for my professional work on a regular basis. Um, so I would say, yeah, any sort of research base. The concept based stuff is really interesting to me right now. So I've been, you know, following, you know, the Rachel French's and the Julie Stearns and I, I'm really interested in learning more about that. Do you have a book that you like that you like to give to people that you like to quote or um, kind of recommend people to read? Well, like I said, that checklist manifesto has been my big <laughs> epiphany lately. I don't know what that is, but it just, I've been telling everybody, like, checklist, man, that's going to save the world. We're, we're going to change the world with checklists and procedures. But yeah, so that was, you know, I've read so much lately. It's hard for me to remember. I did read Indian Horse just recently, um, and that had... I had quite a visceral response to that. I have to say, uh, yeah, it was um, it was a great book. I think if I were to recommend one, that would be it at this point in time. What's something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? Uh, I don't know. I stretch in the morning. <laughs> uh, try to eat three square meals a day. Eat my vegetables, take my vitamins probably the usual stuff. I do need my quiet time. I, I am a, because I'm a pretty strong introvert. So if I don't get my quiet time, I get a little cranky. So I do try to carve out a little bit of reading or just downtime for myself. Cause that's how I recharge my battery. Do you get, do you get pushback? There's, 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 seems like there's a, for a long time, it was a extroverted dominated world. Mm-hmm. And have you ever experienced that where you, you, someone says oh no you got to come out and they just don't understand oh always always yeah i hate leaving my house and you know i'm always constantly torn you know people want to do things and you feel you always feel guilty that you never i mean once you get out and start doing it you like it but for an introvert to leave the house is just it's always a moment of crisis before you have to step out the door and i often find excuses not to leave or whatever but yeah and i think yeah extrovert personalities tend to get especially in leadership positions right they tend to be um, more easily recognized and rewarded but i think introverts are carving their carving out their little niche yeah, I think that there's a mm. developing groundswell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agree. Do you have an organization or person that's really inspiring you right now? Um, well, like I said, I think the the concept-based inquiry movement, if you want to call it, that has really got me thinking a lot. Um, not just because of the 
uh, possible curriculum that's coming down the pipe. I'm really, I'm really excited about how we might grow that work in our division because I think we can really push some excellence there if we can get kids thinking more conceptually, more creatively, more flexibly, and thinking for meaning um, rather than just rote and procedure and. Um, training kids to be good at the game of school. I, I think there's some opportunity there to really engage our learners. Mm-hmm. What's next for you? What are some of the questions, problems that you're working on? What are some projects that uh, that we can we can maybe see that'll occupy your time? Uh, I don't know. That's a really good question. Uh, I think we're we're doing some good work with trying to bring some teachers together to start building some common assessments. I'm excited about that. Um, I know we've got some really brilliant teachers in our division, and I, I want to tap into the wealth of resources they're going to bring to the table that I think are going to be um, really uh, supportive of teachers who are coming into the profession or even teachers who've been around for a while to say, you know, here's what a quality assessment looks like and then hopefully build some collaboration around that um, and again the concept-based work I'm I'm excited to to do some of that As, you know aside from whatever curriculum happens I think there's some uh, you know you mentioned the the moving the needle I think that's that's where we have to go in our in our next steps so getting into schools and figuring that out is what I'm excited about that's great Thanks so much for sharing with us. Thanks yeah, for sitting down, taking you your bet. time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, Intersection Ed, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.